Kyle, your long-lost friend Greg Long here. Checking in with your brother. Hope you've been doing well. Sending my regards from Southern Baja. I've been hanging out and isolating down here the last month and a half. Been rather blustery springtime conditions, but beautiful nonetheless. There's amazing wildflower bloom happening. The gray whales making their way north. Plenty of space to walk about in the desert and the beaches. So uh, enjoying the slow downtime. Hope you guys have been doing the same up there. Miss you all. Just dropped into town to get some service. Download a couple more podcasts. Keep them coming. Always appreciate the entertainment and education, brother. Gregory, so nice to hear from you, my friend. If any of you want to send me a voice memo, you can record it on your phone. Just let me know who you are, where you're listening from, some details about your surroundings, and email it to info at kyle.surf. That's info at kyle.surf. Just try and keep it under a minute, and I'd love to play it on the show. I'm going to read a quick excerpt from a book called Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim by David Sedaris. This is the June book that I'm including in my monthly Box of Goodies subscription. So if you want to support this podcast and get more reading in your life, you can sign up for my Box of Goodies on my website, kyle.surf. And each month I will deliver you a book that I love, as well as a potent CBD tincture from Santa Cruz Medicinals. Santa Cruz Medicinals has been supporting this podcast from day one, and I love their tincture. I use it before I go to sleep. It helps me relax after a big work. Out helps me get a deeper night's sleep. And uh, if you want that and a book every month, head over to my website, kyle.surf. All right, here's the excerpt. And to give you a little context, David is talking about being a kid and his mom getting pissed at he and his sisters and locking them outside in the snow. That bitch, my sister Lisa said. We pounded again and again, and when our mother failed to answer, we went around back and threw snowballs at her bedroom window. You're going to be in so much trouble when dad gets home, we shouted, and in response, my mother pulled the drapes. Dusk approached, and as it grew colder, it occurred to us that we could possibly die. It happened, surely. Selfish mothers wanted the house to themselves, and their children were discovered years later, frozen like mastodons of blocks in ice. I love David Sedaris, and I think that you will too. So you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and sign up for the box, uh, the monthly box of goodies if you're interested. This episode is also made possible by the Nell Newman Foundation. And the Nell Newman Foundation sponsors bold, unpopular, and iconoclastic ideas. They were the primary funder of the Motherfucker Awards, the comedy show that my buddy Chris Ryan and I did where we uh, – praised and celebrated corporations that were fucking Mother Earth and got famous comedians to impersonate them with acceptance speeches. And they're now supporting this podcast. And in each ad, I get to support an organization that is doing great work. And this week, we are going to highlight Mark Titus and his new film, The Wild. Here is a quick message from Mark. Kyle, it's Mark Titus. It was great to connect with you this week. As you know, um, I talked your ear off about being in love with wild salmon, and it's um, it's got a lot more to do with just these last two movies I've made, The Wild and The Breach, and 
everything to do with the fact that these critters are, uh, to me, the biggest symbol of life making itself whole again. Uh, they find their way home to create new life no matter what. And so um, in honor of them, I created this movie, The Wild, which is coming out right now on a road tour virtually, as well as a, an impact brand to give back to places like Bristol Bay that are the last fully intact wild salmon runs on earth. Um, and that brand's called Ava's Wild. And um, hope to tell you a little bit more about it soon. Take care. Bye. And I will link to everything in the description below. I'm coming to you from northern Colorado, where I will be spending my summer. I may drive up north through Wyoming and Montana at some point, fishing, hunting, writing, and podcasting, sleeping out of the back of my car, and absolutely loving it. If you're in any of those states, uh, give me a shout. The email is info at kyle.surf. If the stars align, I would love to meet up. My guest today is my hero. And he is my hero because he is working on the most important issue of our time, in my opinion. The way that Lawrence Lessig puts it, campaign finance reform is not the most important issue, but it is the first issue. If we as a country want to solve any other issue from criminal justice reform to environmental reform, it all starts with how campaigns are funded and the influence of corporate money in politics. I'm going to read you an extensive bio because I think it's worth it, and then we'll get this podcast going. Lawrence Lessig is an American academic attorney and political activist. He is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and the former director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Lessig is a proponent of reduced legal restrictions on copyright, trademark, and radio frequency spectrum, particularly in technology applications. In 2001, he founded Creative Commons, a nonprofit organization devoted to expanding the range of creative works available for others to build upon and share legally. Prior to his most recent appointment at Harvard, he was a professor of law at Stanford Law School. As a political activist, Lessig has called for state-based activism to promote substantive reform of government. In May of 2014, he launched a crowdfunding political action committee, which he termed Mayday PAC, with the purpose of electing candidates to Congress who would pass campaign finance reform. In, Lessig, in October uh, of 2011, he came out with the book Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Congress and a Plan to Stop It. And at the occupation protest in Washington, D.C., reporter Dan Frumpkin said the book offers a manifesto for the Occupy Wall Street protesters, focusing on the core problem of corruption in both political parties and their elections. In 2017, Lessig announced a movement to challenge the winner-take-all electoral college vote allocations in the various states called Equal Votes. Lessig was named to the Fast Case 50, honoring, quote, the law's smartest, most courageous innovators, techies, visionaries, and leaders. Please give it up for my hero, Professor Lawrence Lessig.
much for making the time, man. I really appreciate it. Glad to do it. Um, you have been a major influence in my life for quite some time, ever since mm -hmm. I watched um, The Internet's Own Boy uh, years ago. It really spurred my um, life and love of activism. And then as we did the Motherfucker Awards, your work on campaign finance reform was a real beacon for us to make the critique between um, corporations, lobbying groups, and government, which was the point that we were trying to make in a satirical way. Um, so thank you for that. I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and um, the influence that you've had on me for years. I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah. Um, I, uh, how are you doing? How are you doing today? Um, well, you know, it's a week since the argument, so I'm just recovering. And it's a lot of stuff to get done that have built up behind it. Yeah. What's it like coming off the back of a Supreme Court argument like that? It depends what kind of person you are. So, you know, I clerked for Scalia and Scalia was the sort of person who every decision he made was the best possible decision. And he would, you know, even things like I once accompanied him to Russia and things like which restaurant we chose to go to. After we went there, it was like that was just the, that was just the best thing we could have done or, you know, go to the Bolshoi. It was the best decision. That was the best idea. And I, I think like I'm the opposite. So I feel like every decision I make, I then spend the rest of my life rethinking it or remaking that decision. And it's the worst when it's something like an oral argument in the Supreme Court, because, you know, literally the next morning I wake up and I'm like, oh, my God, why didn't I do that? Or, you know, and it doesn't go away. It's like, you know, I, I guarantee you for the next six months, every morning I will wake up with a new thought of something that should have been done differently. The curse of ambition. I don't know what it is. It's a pathology, whatever. I, I agree. I, I really think that it is. Um, and uh, I suffer from that as well. And I just try and um, move the, the mark uh, from self-loathing to um, a more quiet dislike. <laughs> That's as far as I've been able to, to get it. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's important because self-loathing can be um, paralyzing in certain mm -hmm. ways. Um, so when you, uh, will you tell me a little bit about the case that, that you just made and, um, and more specifically how you prepare for an oral argument, uh, in the Supreme court? Well, you know, we at equal citizens, I'm wearing the logo equal citizens right here. Um, uh, you know, we're on a campaign to try to get some rational reform to the structure of our electoral college. Because we think that the Electoral College produces a president who doesn't represent America. And that strategy has had three facets. One was the case that I argued last week, which is to get people to recognize what, in fact, the Electoral College is right now. The second is a series of cases we've been doing to force get the courts to say that states can't allocate all of their electors to the winner of the popular vote, that you should proportionally allocate those electors. Um, and the third will be an amendment, which we are going to be launching shortly after the Supreme Court makes its decision in our case. Um, and it's an amendment which we think that actually uh, easily 40 states should prefer because it would make their life better. And, and all three of these sort of point to the core problem with the Electoral College right now. And that's the system called winner-take-all. Because what winner-take-all means is that the only states 
that a presidential candidate cares about are the so-called swing states. In 2016, it was 14 states that got 99% of campaign spending. And in 2020, that number could be nine, maybe eight. And what that means is that the other 41, 42 states don't matter to the president. And in fact, we can show in ways spending happens and regulation happens that the swing states benefit from their status as swing states. And the rest of the country is harmed by that. So, you know, when Trump became president, he announced an um, end to the ban for offshore drilling. Uh, California and Florida and, and New Jersey all objected to that ban. Within a very short time, Florida had gotten an exemption. California and New Jersey couldn't even get a hearing. And what's the reason for that? It's that Florida is a swing state. <laughs> so the president's keen to keep Florida happy. But uh, California and New Jersey are not swing states. So they just don't matter. Um, and the only reason for this dynamic, it's not in the Constitution, the only reason for this dynamic is that states have decided to allocate their electors in winner take all. And what we want to do is to force the change to get the rule that those electors get allocated proportionally. And if we can get an amendment at a fractional level, so the presidential candidates care about every single part of the country, not just those weird swing states. So that would be, let's say, 40, 46% of California went Republican, they would get 40, 46% of the elector, uh, electors? Yes, exactly. Um, and of course, you couldn't do that uh, unilaterally, um, because if you did that unilaterally, then states like California would lose their power relative to other states. But if every state did it at the same time, through an amendment or through a, a rule of, of the court that said basically this was what was required, then you could achieve um, this change in the incentives that presidential candidates have so that they care about the whole country, not just the so-called swing states. Now, all of that's a little bit separate from you know the case that we argued, that I argued on Wednesday, which is really just to ask the question, who are these people called electors in the Electoral College? Um, you know, do they have any discretion? It's clear, you know, it's one of the clearest facts in American history that at the founding, the framers imagined electors would be kind of like wise guys who would like think about who the president should be and decide who the president should be. And very quickly, they became kind of party hacks. Um, but the ultimate question is whether, even though they're party hacks, they still are electors, meaning they're people who have a constitutional discretion that they get to vote their conscience, um, regardless of how the vote might have happened in a particular state. And that's the question that the court uh, has got to answer. And we think either way the court answers is going to make it um, easier to take the next step to try to get reform of the Electoral College. I was happy that you brought up... Um uh, oil drilling. Uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are surfers and ocean lovers as am I. So let's say that there is a California surfer who says, holy shit, they're going to drill off of my local surf spot. Um, I want to stop this. Um, what would be an initial way that they could get involved in campaign finance reform um, to influence an issue that they care about, like offshore drilling? What's like the initial stage to flexing that citizen muscle? Yeah, well, so let's just be honest. Uh, given the system as it is, the citizens have no muscle. Because, you know, the reality is 
our government bends over backwards, Republicans mainly, but Democrats too, to keep big money happy because they need big money to get their party elected. Um, so, you know, we've just seen this extraordinary response to the COVID crisis. It was really astonishing. Like the first thing they thought about was like, how do we make sure our rich buddies are taken care of, that they don't suffer uh, in the, you know, as a consequence of this crisis. And then when you get around to like, you know, people who make $50,000 or less, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, we've run out of money. We don't have anything to help you guys. I mean, the only people who actually need help, really, um, there's no money for them. There's only money to make sure that, you know, these big uh, uh, corporations continue to have the ease to pay huge bonuses to their employees. So, so the reality is under the system as it is right now, you're screwed. You're a, sur a surfer in California. Forget it. Like, just forget it. Um, the only thing you can you should be thinking about is like, what can we do to make the system so that in fact, you know, the views of ordinary people matter um, because they certainly don't matter now. Okay. Um, and, and what would be an initial way to, um, to get involved in that? I mean, I know that you say that there's, there's not much that we can do as, you know, a lower income person. Um, the system doesn't care about you. Um, would you would you recommend them just getting involved with equal citizens initially? Well, the thing that's got to happen right now is we need a commitment from our politicians to pass fundamental reform of our political system as the first thing that happens in 2021. So let's be clear. If Donald Trump is reelected, that's not going to happen. Um, it's not clear what will be left of American democracy in the way that we conceived of it four years ago um, uh, in 2024. But um Donald Trump and his party is not going to bring about fundamental reform. But what was amazing about the Democrats in 2019, after Nancy Pelosi became Speaker of the House, is she delivered on a promise she had made, which was that the first package of reform that she would pass through the House of Representatives um, would be fundamental reform of our political system. Um, and so she passed something called H.R. 1. And what's important there is it was H.R. 1, the first bill to go through Congress. Um, that had public funding of congressional campaigns, gerrymandering reform, a promise to restore the Voting Rights Act, really important ethics reform, all these things bundled together. Um, and what's important about that is it recognized there's no silver bullet here. You've got to make all of these changes at the same time, and you've got to make them first. And, and that model is what has to happen in 2021. And now, you know, we then, equal citizens, represent us, um, and Citizens United, we then spent the last uh, two uh, year and a half reaching out to every single major presidential candidate to try to get them to commit to what we called POTUS one, like the first thing the president would push for. And what we said was, you need to do HR one or better. Like you need to commit to what HR one has or more than what HR one has. And we got every single major candidate to commit to that, except Joe Biden. So you know, we went into the South Carolina primary thinking, OK, whoever wins, we're going to get there. And nobody thought Joe Biden was going to win. But there it is. Now Joe Biden's going to be our nominee. And, you know, the work that we've been doing that many people have been doing to try to get this as a commitment to the Democratic Party is now in jeopardy. So one thing you can do right away tomorrow or right now, pause this podcast and go do it, is to reach out to the Biden campaign and say, what the hell? Like, Let's finally commit to fixing this corrupted political democracy so that the views of the people matter. And we don't have politicians who are 
dependent on these tiny number of funders and therefore unable to do anything that pissed them off. If we don't get that change, nothing else will happen. And the only way to get that change is to demand it, especially right now, especially when somebody like Joe Biden is trying to solidify the base of the Democratic Party. Excellent. I'm going to zoom out a little bit and ask you um, a more philosophical question. In the last couple of years, I've become uh, very interested in stoicism for the reason that um, a very blunt explanation of it is um, knowing the difference between what you can change and what you cannot change. And the reason why the work that you're doing is so attractive to me is because um, it seems that you are really focused on that question and um, making your shots really count. I was wondering, do you have any experience with Stoic philosophy and has that uh, influenced your work at all? I, I don't know if I would make it fancy by calling it the product of Stoic philosophy. But I do feel like um, there's a way in which I approach the question of reform um, with a certain realism. Um, you know, when you think about every single important movement for change. There's the people who are at the finish line, the people who are able to celebrate when something is accomplished. So Martin Luther King, after Lyndon Baines Johnson got the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. There he is celebrating. Um, and, and God bless him. I mean, he obviously was an inspiration to an extraordinary number of Americans. Um, but long before Martin Luther King... <laughs> You know, there are people in the 1870s, in the 1880s, in the 1890s, and in the, in the 1900s, and, 19, you know, people were pushing for fundamental civil rights reform, whose names we don't even know, whose names are completely forgotten. But their work was as important to the ultimate victory as what Martin Luther King did. And so, you know, early in this project, I realized this is a hard process. It's going to take a long time to win this fight. But it's the most important fight. We have to win this fight. And if you approach it by asking, like, can I be the Martin Luther King of this movement? You would never take it up because nobody can be the Martin Luther King of this movement right now. We're not close enough. We're not there. Like, there's not, it's not time to get across the finish line. So you got to choose to be the forgotten person, the person that, you know, in 50 years, when we look back and say, God, can you imagine there was this time when corporations could just buy politicians. I mean, that's just amazing. Um, and then, you know, there's some 20-something or maybe some 15-year-old right now who's going to be the Martin Luther King at that moment when, like, the like the victory is achieved and there they are in the Capitol steps with the president of the United States. Um, but, you know, I, I, I wanted to be that kind of person who, like, only the historian looks back and say, you know, this movement started in the in the disquiet that was seeded by a bunch of different organizations. And, you know, among them is, here's one guy, uh, you know, Lessig, or maybe, I don't know how to spell his name, actually, but whatever. <laughs> the point is, it's a person who's, like, willing to just move the block four feet down the road, realizing that that's not victory, but that's the movement necessary so that someday there can be victory. And, and that's the game I've been playing for a long time. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is uh, by Howard Zinn, which is what matters most are the count. I, I'm butchering it, but it's the countless deeds of unknown people who will lay the significant events uh, in history. 
I believe is in the, that is the that's the philosophy. That is yeah. the philosophy. And, and what's hard is to choose to be the unknown souls, you know, because there are lots of other things you could do that could make you a known soul. Like if being known is the important thing, then you know there's other things to do. But if like make it, you know, if once you get committed, and you know, you started by talk, referring to Aaron Swartz through his movie, you know, once you're committed as I became committed because of Aaron Swartz to take this fight up, realizing it was the only fight, like if we had to win this fight, we don't win anything. Then that's to commit to the idea that maybe the, you know, what, whether known or unknown, that's just the fight you have to play. Yeah. Um, I had the chance to travel a lot when I was younger um, and I wanted to be a professional surfer growing up. And then I had a chance to travel to a lot of these areas that were, desperately impoverished. Um, I come from a family of filmmakers, so I brought a camera along with me on these trips and right around the same time was watching a little bit too much Vice and uh, thought that I was going to be one of these teen journalists. Um, so I started making these documentaries about environmental issues in um, surf destinations around the world, which kind of spurred my um, you know, quote unquote career in activism. And the more people who I talk to on this podcast um, who have committed their lives to some form of fighting the status quo and fighting power structures, talk about um, experiences that they had early on where they were exposed to suffering. I was wondering if you have had any experiences when you were younger that exposed you to suffering that got you to commit to this work, any kind of early moments in activism? Well, um, you know, uh, yeah. So when I was a kid, I was abused. Um, I went away to school and I was abused for three years while I was away at school. And so I was, you know, 12 to 15. Um, and what that experience did was, to me was to make me constantly reflect on two kinds of evil. So one evil is the abuser, who's obviously a criminal and should be sent to jail. Um, but in some senses, somebody who is pathological himself, like, you know, abusers, sex abusers are people who've been, for whatever reason, brought to a place that they can't control what they know they shouldn't be doing. But then the second kind of evil are the people around that abuser who enable him either through active measures or through passive, you know, taking a blind eye when they should be recognizing what's going on. And what I came to feel was that the more important evil to fight was the enabling evil, the people who could have done something but didn't. Um, the people who were not driven by a pathology, but just weak, weakness, who didn't want to be embarrassed, who didn't want to lose their tiny little bit of social status by calling out something that would make life uncomfortable for them. Um, and this is a kind of structural integrity or lack of integrity that, you know, I began to see in every single thing I got involved with, I began to look for that corruption as well as the corruptions, you know, the more obvious ones. So, you know, my whole work about campaign finance or the corruption of our democracy is, you know, you can, you can think about, you know, the people who engage in bribery 
um, you know, and this president has engaged in so many incredible acts of what can't be described as anything but criminal exploitation of his power for personal gain. But I actually think that's the less important problem to focus on. The more important problem to focus on are the people who allow the system of corrupt dependence to survive because they're not willing to stand up and say, we have to change the way campaigns are funded. If we don't do that, we're never going to get anything done. Um, so those enablers, you know, I think are, we've got to find a way to hold them uh, as responsible for the harm as the criminals are responsible for the harm. And, and that, all of that perspective and that, ref, that way of thinking about things, you know, I think is directly flows from what happened to me when I was just a kid. Were you, uh, as a kid, comfortable being subversive and being um, standing up for something, even if you were the only voice in the room? You know, I don't know. I mean, there are many points where I would cause trouble in high school and in college, and but it was never in the early part of my life it doesn't have the kind of romance of like causing trouble for, um, you know, somebody weak or disempowered. It's more like a principal reason to cause trouble. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it subversive as much as trying to hold the system to its own standards, not trying to transform the system. Um, uh, you know, and I came up, I grew up as a, in a, in a, you know, the kind of Kentucky part of Pennsylvania, very conservative, small town. Uh, I myself came from a conservative family. I was a uh, Republican until um, I went to law school. Um, and and so, you know, what right and wrong meant then was not so much about doing justice in the world as uh, something different. I'm not sure how to think about that now, but but that's but that was the kind of activism that I think I would find myself engaged in. Hmm. What do you think is the role of activism in creating a durable democracy? Well, I think that what's necessary is people willing to be uncomfortable. Um, and that's a really hard attitude to encourage because, you know, there are a lot of values, which we think are just obviously right. And somebody who is willing to be uncomfortable challenging those attitudes is not somebody that we typically respect or like, you know, so I believe in equality, I believe in sex equality, there are people who don't, you know. So should we say that those people should be encouraged to feel uncomfortable by pressing their anti equality ideals? Um, you know, obviously, I feel that I we've resolved that question. We should have resolved that question. I don't. I don't want those ideals continue to continuing to clog, uh, clog up the opportunity for progress to be made. But the point is that discomfort is a is an attitude that we need to find a way to sustain because it's what's necessary to change things that we now are comfortable with and soon will realize we shouldn't have been comfortable with. Right. Um, you know, every generation looks at its parents and thinks of its parents, how could they have done X? You know, whether that's 
oppose uh, gay marriage or want to criminalize homosexuality or oppose integrated schools or whatever. Like, we can't imagine how they could do that. What's harder for us to recognize is that our children will look back at us and say the same thing. How could they ever have done X? And we don't even know right now what it is that our kids will criticize us for. Because everything we believe seems so obviously correct, just like our parents and just like their parents. I mean, you can't escape the reality that every generation finds a reason to hate their parents. And so we need to create an opportunity to encourage that in a, in a edifying, supportive way, rather than in a condemnatory or intolerant way. And I fear that especially people on my side of the political aisle, the kind of leftists, are so sanctimonious and so confident of their truths that they encourage not people to agree with them, but people to ignore them because their intolerance makes it hard to hear. And I think we have to work, work harder to find a way to open up our manner to a diversity that we don't right now acknowledge. I agree. I agree. I, yeah, I grew up in a little surf town in Northern California and um, was largely uh, accepted into most social groups when I was a kid. Um, and I, I noticed that, that kids that were, that tended to not be accepted into these social groups, they were able to flex that muscle of being the only voice in the room, um, more, more confidently. You know, I, like, I think that there's a reason why, um, gay people come up with the best art, um, you know, because they were never accepted, you know, they've, they're constantly looking at society from this outside point. And, um, to be totally honest, my greatest fear is getting swept up in that river of um, cool and that river of just uh, accepted, being accepted and, and, and listening to people who tell me that they have it all figured out. And um, I've worked very hard to flex that muscle of, of being subversive. And I, even just in the last couple of years of doing the motherfucker awards. Um, I'm not a comedian, but I started doing open mics and I would go down and just bomb and, and doing jokes, you know, you need to be a little subversive and, and challenge people. And you say a joke and, and the feeling of having an audience look at you like you're a bad person is <laughs> so powerful. I think that everyone should go do open mics and bomb to, to experience what it's like for some people who were just born in, you know, the wrong, with the wrong color skin in the wrong era. Um, And I think that there are, there are daily practices that we can incorporate um, to flex that muscle. Um, There's a a philosopher named Cato um, who would, walk around, he's a Stoic philosopher, and he would walk around with a purple tunic purposely to be laughed at by other citizens so that he could incorporate this philosophy of only being embarrassed by things that he should truly feel embarrassed about. Yeah. um, And of course, 
it's a particularly important thing for people like me to develop. And by that, I mean like white male over 50 to develop. Because I think part of the political dynamic of where we are right now is that people like me, I don't mean literally like me because I, you know, I'm an academic, I'm a liberal, I live in a diverse culture, but like where I came from, people like me, the people I went to high school with, my, my male buddies, um, you know, these are people who, when they grew up, every hero was a white male, you know, Bob Hope, you know, all, all these kind of figures, they were all white males. And they live in a society today where, you know, who are the white male heroes? I mean, they're, everybody who's cool is a woman or, you know, non-white. I mean, they're, you know, Tom Hanks. They're, they're, it's not like they're none. But the point is, the presumptive entitlement of being a white male has been removed. Now, you know, from my view, that's great. And that's really wonderful because it's a much better society to have this beauty and diversity all cutting across. But you can understand how for a certain kind of person – this is kind of all they had, especially if, you know, they don't have a job, they don't have a retirement. The one thing they had has now been taken away from them. And and this is what Donald Trump is able to tap into so powerfully. Like, where is my country gone? By which they simply mean, where is my entitlement to have a respect merely because of the way I was born gone? And the answer to that is you should never have had that. Like, that should never have been a part of the American experiment. Um, it was. And that was a failure. Uh, and now we're fixing that. But I think that learning to deal with that reality or that recognition is a critical part of growing up in the 21st century. And people who feel like they grew up 40 years ago need to learn how to grow up again with that. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and consistently challenging your own beliefs. Um, are you If you have a closely held belief, are there a set of questions that you'll ask yourself to try and prove yourself wrong or really try and empathize with the other side? Well, I mean, I don't know what belief means here. I mean, you know, certain things, no. I mean, you know, a belief in charity, a belief in tolerance, a belief in, um, uh, you know, the enlightenment. I'm finished challenging those beliefs. Um, you know, a belief in a person. Sorry, I just hit my mic again. Um, a belief in a candidate, a belief in a party. Yeah, those things I feel like I challenge all the time. Um, you know, and I feel like I've gotten in a lot of trouble for not being sufficiently loyal uh, uh, in that context. So, you know, Barack Obama was a colleague of mine at Chicago. I was a strong supporter of him in every campaign he ran from the beginning of his career until the end of his political campaign career. Um but a year into his administration, I became a vocal critic of, you know, the failure of that administration to take up the challenge of reform. I mean, he was elected. Um, he would give a speech. I've, I've repeated it so many times. I think I know it by heart. If we don't take up that fight, the fight to change the way Washington works, then real change, change that will make a lasting difference in the lives of ordinary Americans, will keep getting blocked by the, uh, by the defenders of the status quo. That's who I thought he would be as president. And a year into his administration, it was clear they had no time at all for fundamental change. And so I wrote a big piece in The Nation attacking him for it. And then I was attacked by people for attacking the president. And, you know, inside the administration, people who used to be friendly wouldn't talk to me anymore. And it's like, you know, you got to be loyal. Um, and, you know, so I don't believe that. I don't think you have to be loyal. I think you have to be, you know, you have to be committed 
You have to be loyal to your principles and to your ideals. And you need to figure those out. But at a certain stage, I think we figured them out and we have to go out and make them real. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about Matt Taibbi. Uh, I'm a big fan of him. I follow uh, a lot of his work, first at Rolling Stone and and now on Substack. Um, And he just came out with an article that was titled, uh, Democrats Have Abandoned Our Civil Liberties. And I appreciated the article because pe- most people tend to see him on the left. And I think that he does a uniquely good job continuously removing himself and um, trying to look at issues honestly, um, which is why I, I enjoy reading his writing is because you never really know what you're going to get. I was wondering if you um, have any perspective on um, the civil liberties that are being taken away with COVID-19. And if you think that people should be worried about this kind of um, disaster capitalism ratcheting effect. So I'm a big fan of Matt. I haven't read this article, so I don't want to pretend to comment on it. Um, But I do think that the COVID-19 forces uh, should force us to, to think again about what we mean by civil liberties or privacy in this context. Um, you know, there's a, there's a deep parallel between the current privacy debate and the debate that Aaron Swartz and I were engaged in 20 years ago around copyright, right? So it's hard to see, but, you know, give me a minute. I think I can paint it. You know, in the, when the internet was born, copyright owners hated it because they felt like they'd lost control over their copyrighted material. Like people were Napster copying their songs. Everybody had access to their songs. It totally destroyed the control that they once had. And their reaction was to say, we need to build technology to give us perfect control over our data once again. So that every single use you make of a song, you will license it. and You have no uses that you've not licensed. And, you know, the copyright warriors like Aaron and I and others would say, that's bullshit. We should not try to create perfect control over content. We should create systems that give you commercial return where it's appropriate for you to get commercial return. But we should celebrate making culture available as freely as possible. And so we should think about a new system for rewarding creativity that didn't turn this into a massive system of technical control. I think the same debate has developed around privacy. But now the people who are defending privacy are like, you know, the the record labels, Right? Because what they're saying is, oh, the Internet's come along and all these companies are like taking all our data. And what we now need to do is to recreate systems of control to give us perfect control over data. Um, and I think there should be a similar response. It should be, no, we don't need perfect control over data. What we need is to make sure that data is not used in certain ways that defeat important objectives of privacy. Um but, but having data available for all sorts of public good reasons is a really important thing. And COVID brings this out directly. So, so um, you know, I, I think that data, anytime you use data and you reach back and identify me and harm me because of that use, that's a misuse of data. Um, so, for example, if you, you know, if you're Facebook and you watch how quickly I type over time, and at a certain stage, you think, oh, geez, his speed of typing has changed such that we're pretty convinced he has dementia. 
And we're going to therefore tell his insurance company that he has dementia. That's a foul. They should never be able to use the information that I'm revealing in a way that traces back to me and harms me. And so that's the equivalent of like regulating commercial use for copyrighted material. Like that use should be forbidden or it should be only with express permission. But in the COVID-19 context, if we could gather data about like, you know, when people were near other people who happened to be, uh, happened to be uh, infected with a certain disease um, and be able to trace them and, and inform them and take remedial steps to make sure they don't spread it anymore, that seems to me to be a great use of data. Because, of course, you're not, you, you're not stigmatizing. You know, it's not like, you know, remember 30, 40 years ago, the AIDS debate. Um, then there was a whole complicated stigma because at that time, homosexuality itself was stigma, created stigma. And so to the extent it was associated with homosexuality, to identify somebody as HIV positive was to raise the question. So it was like doubly stupid um, because of these stupid social meanings. But today, you like to, to like be test positive for COVID. It's, it's not like anything other than, oh, geez, I'm sorry, you tested positive for COVID. So like being able to identify who these people are using data is a good thing. What we need to do is to make sure that no company has any incentive ever to leverage that data and do bad things with it. And what that means is both a combination of technology and basically death penalty regulations. Like if you're a company that misuses data um, then that's it. You're dead. You know, we're going to execute you. We're going to dissolve your assets and distribute it to your shareholders. And that's it. No more for you. Um, and if we had that kind of regulation, I think we could actually produce extraordinary public good by enabling the use of a wide range of data that now is just too cumbersome to be able to use, while at the same time preserving the really important uh, value that privacy needs to create. And so, so that's that to say is, I think we need a time to rethink privacy, just like, you know, many of us were arguing needed a time to rethink copyright. And, uh, you know, we didn't really rethink copyright, but we desperately need to rethink privacy because the fight is all in the other, uh, in the other way right now. Yeah, I agree. I have, uh, a ring called an aura ring that measures your sleep cycles, uh, as well as exercise throughout the day. So it can tell you if you've been getting poor night's sleep and it actually, uh, contributed to me quitting alcohol this year because I noticed just wow. how, how shitty my sleep was getting uh, every time I would drink more than, you know, have more than two drinks. But this app just recently um, partnered with states to try and track uh, people who are potentially coming on with COVID. And they can measure this through uh, your temperature. You know, if you have a raised temperature, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to be getting sick. And uh, I signed up for the survey um, and I think that it's it's a great way that we can use data for for social good. Um, I agree with you there. And it also yeah, um, it, go for it. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sandy Pentland at MIT um, wrote a book about eight years ago where he was talking about a technology. You know, the fact that just using cell phone data, location tracking data, you could predict the. Sp- the spread of disease and pandemic. And, and simply by like, you know, you learn the patterns of people, the, the, the technology learns the pattern of people. And then when they notice people slowing down, um, that pattern or that deviation from normal pattern signals the beginning of sickness, even before the people know that they're sick, their cell phone data reveals that they're sick. 
And so the point is you could have these data available in a way that could be used for social, socially good re- ways or reasons, um, uh, even though you know, nobody should ever be able to use this in a way that makes life harder or worse for individuals. Hmm. Yeah. What, what is COVID exposing in our political system? Are you having any new insights just over the last couple months? Um, any, any kind of wow moments? I had no idea things had gotten this bad or any, oh, wow, uh, we really need to put more resources into this aspect of government. Uh, you have a unique perspective on this moment in history. Oh, my God. It is the most depressing moment. I can't begin to describe how horrible this recognition has been because, you know, I, I, I was in, I was in Iceland at the end of January and I gave a talk about the way media had evolved in America. And, and the basic argument was um, because we've created this polarized, fragmented media environment, we create these tribes and the tribes don't understand the same world. They live in separate worlds. And so unlike in the old, you know, in the 70s, for example, when we were all watching the same television and we had different values, but we basically responded to the same set of facts, they just did two different, completely different sets of facts. And that was all in the context of the impeachment. And my, you know, my, my, my argument was, you know, Republicans just don't even see the same world as Democrats do about impeachment. But if you had asked me at that moment, well, what if there was something like a pandemic where like tens of thousands of people were actually dying? Um, do you think that would pierce the kind of bubbles of these tribal uh, media environments and people would begin to understand the same set of facts so they could respond to this deep threat? It, it, I would have said yes. I would have said there's a limit. Like at some point you extend beyond politics or just abstract ideas like, you know, corruption or whatever, you get down to life and death, like grandma's dying because of this disease. Yes, we will finally come to understand as a people again. But here we are in a world where, you know, a significant chunk of America um, has deep skepticism about the science behind this disease, believe that it's kind of a conspiracy of the left or a conspiracy of Bill Gates so he can make more billions through a vaccine. I mean, absurd theories that get driven by a media uh, infrastructure, Fox News, who believes it's its job to rally the base, regardless of the truth, to rally the base um, to resist the uh, to resist the the other side, the Democrats. And and you know, every single day you wake up and think you just can't believe nobody has the courage to stand up and and to and to challenge this, even in the media itself. Um, um, you know, and again, from my perspective, the biggest problem are the enablers. So, you know, Fox News is a corporation. They could choose not to allow their employees to do this harm to society. They could say to the Sean Hannity's or the um, to the Laura um, Ingrams or the Tucker Carlson's enough, enough. We're just not going to have this bullshit, primetime bullshit for six months. We're going to have, you know, Walter Cronkite-like news for six months. And if they did it, then MSNBC would do it. Like, if we could just say, look, there's a certain moment we have to turn off the bullshit and recognize we've got a crisis. They could do that, but they don't do that. Um, 
Or, you know, you think here we've got a president of the United States who's announcing on national television that he's taken an unproven drug, well, proven to be harmful in many cases, especially for, as Nancy Pelosi puts it, the morbidly obese. Um, uh, and, um, you know, and any other person, any other context, you would think, OK, now we have the clearest indication that the man is is psychotic, like there's a deep psychotic break in this person. And ordinarily, you would say, okay, a deep psychotic break, we have to intervene. I mean, if you were on, if you were, if you were sitting in an airplane and the pilot got on the uh, loudspeaker and the pilot said, oh, and by the way, I'm up here, you know, uh, taking some hydroxychloroquine uh, uh, because <laughs> I understand a whole bunch of you might be carriers of the HIV. You, you would just sit there and say, okay, well, let's wait till he lands the plane. And you would be like, get him out of the cockpit. This is like unbelievable, unfucking believable. Here we are. You have people like Mitch McConnell just staring there in his kind of stupid, like, uh, uh, turtle eyes. And, like, everybody allows this crazy man to continue his absurdity. And and it's, it's like, where, what is the line? What would it take? What would it take for people to finally say enough? Um, and, you know, it terrifies me because this guy has got to realize that if he does not win re-election, his life is over. I mean, there will be 150 lawsuits that will be after every single bit of he and his and his family's wealth, let alone the criminal prosecutions that, that lay out there. So he's going to do anything, anything to get reelected, including what? I mean, the guy's got an extraordinary amount of power. He's got his finger on nuclear buttons, right? So maybe we need a war. That's a good distraction. Um, you know, he had a war that he fumbled. I mean, imagine if he had taken on the COVID virus um, the way, uh, you know, in um, uh, Independence Day, <laughs> you know, they had taken on the aliens coming to, to land in America, to land on Earth, like to rally the world to take on this virus. Um, uh, you know, he could have been a superhero, but of course he fumbled that, but now maybe he needs another war. So maybe we finally have to turn on his friend, Kim Jong-il and, uh, you know, launch a nuclear attack in Korea. And the question is, like, who would stop him? Who would stop him? Who would say, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I'm not going to launch those weapons? Because he's built an administration of sycophants, people around him. Nobody, anybody who doubts him or questions him gets fired. So it is a terrifying, terrifying moment. And again, for me, the, the, you know, he is, he is pathological. It's the people around him who allow him to survive who are evil. Um, and those people, we've got to find a way to punish because we can't survive in a society when people in that position don't do whatever they can to take away the, the harm that this, uh, that this pathological person would create. I wonder how much pathology in our culture is tied to ambition and how much immoral behavior is the result of people trying to achieve their potential. People who are who were told that they were smart as kids and that they have a ton of potential and they just need to keep going and going and going. And then they get into this environment where there's there's no one ethical around them or they haven't they haven't thought deeply about moral behavior. So they're willing to skip a few set steps and lie to get to the top. Um, and, and I don't know the answer to that, but um, I, just speaking from personal experience, like I, I know that any immoral behavior that I've ever acted out in my life has been um, in an effort to get somewhere the quick way. 
Yeah, I mean, there are two parts here. One is ambition, and the other is without constraint. Um, and so if you had ambition with constraint, if you had an ambitious person who just would never do anything wrong, um, then I don't think you have to produce the evil. I mean, like, so I, uh, I, I lost my father t three weeks ago. Um, he was an incredibly important person in my life. He was a kind of person who taught by what he did. So he was a business pe person and um, he had his own company. And I remember one time um, he, you know, his company built steel bridges and his company had bid for a job and gotten the job. And then they discovered they had forgotten to include one item on the bid. So it was a million dollar mistake. Now, this is a company at the time, its net worth was probably a million dollars. Um, and I was like summer, I was doing, working for them in the summer and, and this came out and I was like, well, dad, you know, you, you can't, you can't go through with a contract. You can't do that. Um, you know, it's going to kill the company. You can't. Uh, and he said, well, what do you mean? I can't. I said, I would, it was my word. I said, this is the job I would do for this price. Um, now, you know, there's somebody who was motivated by ambition, uh, but there were lines he wouldn't cross. Even when it was a million bucks, he wouldn't cross that line. Um, and I think if we have those people in society, in places, uh, then ambition's not terrible. Ambition's good. It drives people to produce and create. Now, the, op the opposite person, Donald Trump, um, you know, it's interesting. He's reflected on the fact that never in his life has he paid, as he had to face the consequences for his bad behavior. And he actually, there's a quote where he says, Maybe this is a problem that I've never had to pay the consequences for my bad behavior. And, you know, because what it does is just encourage more bad behavior. I mean, you know, Susan Collins, the idiotic senator from Maine who believes that uh, Donald Trump has been taught a lesson by his impeachment. You know, and he said he's learned his lesson. Yeah, he's learned his lesson. He's learned it doesn't matter. He can do whatever the hell he wants and he will get away with it. Um that's encouraging a tyrant uh, more dramatically than any other moment in American history. And, uh, and you know, I think it's a product of, of a failure of integrity that either comes from being trained on the outside or developing it on the inside. Yeah. You're talking about news and um tribalism and how we now don't even have the same set of facts. You know, half the country doesn't know what the other half is even talking about. One place that I'm seeing, actually two places that I'm seeing those conversations cross over are first in podcasts and specifically a podcast like Joe Rogan's that's reaching millions and millions of people on both sides. And the second is in comedy. Um, comedians have bases from people who are on the right, who are on the left. And even if you disagree with a comedian, if they have a damn good punchline and you're laughing at it, it that idea um, is delivered somewhere deep into your mind and you remember it. Um, yeah. 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 I think that's go for it. So I, 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 um, I just finished a book, which you don't have to read, but you should buy, um, which is, uh, <laughs> um, uh, they don't represent us. And one part of the book is about how the government doesn't represent us. But the other part of the book is about how we don't represent us because of the way the media has crafted us and we are polarized. In part. And, and so then when I talk about the remedies to that, begin to talk about like 
forms of media that overcome this. Um, and so one, one form of media that overcomes this is what we could think of as the slow democracy movement. Like we should realize that we as humans don't do democracy well on Twitter or on Facebook. It just brings out the worst in us. Like the idea that you need to respond in, uh, there's no longer 140 characters, but you know, the point is you have to respond in short form to what somebody else has said will induce you to be inflammatory or dismissive or insulting. And that just doesn't build understanding. But we do know that other forms of media are pretty good at getting political understanding going. And uh, I, I talk about Joe Rogan in particular, but I think podcasting in general. Podcasting where people will be listening to a conversation for an hour or two hours. When I was on the Joe Rogan's podcast, you know, like two and a half hours into it, I looked up and I was like, wait, have we been here for two and a half hours? And, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, this is the way it always is. Like, and people listen to the very end. It's like, this is a context where you can get people to reflect and think about something in a deeper and more nuanced way than they would ever on their Facebook feed or on their um uh, on Twitter. So, so yes, I think that's incredibly important. And I also, I agree with you. I also talk about comedy. Comedy is a context where you can force recognition, even if you don't force agreement. And all we need to do is to get recognition, get people to understand what the issue is, what the point is, um, at least as a first step. Uh, and, and, and so I think, you know, what saves us is moving away from ways we try to talk about politics right now. So, you know, campaign ads or lectures by professors, you know, things that are, um, you know, not effective in getting people to reflect or to think and to move into forms of expression that, that bring out the natural capacity humans have for thinking and reflecting and, and, and wondering and, and coming to new ideas. And, and I, I think there are a lot of hopeful ways to do that. It's just hard to see them right now as at the center of what politics should be. Yeah. I was just listening to Sam Harris's podcast um, in a recent episode. He had Andrew Yang on. And at the very beginning, Yang said, dude, you launched my political campaign <laughs> straight up. It was our podcast that we did that rallied my base. And then Sam said, well, yeah, and really, I just laid you up for Joe Rogan's podcast, which then got your message out to millions and millions of people. Um, what, what are your thoughts on Andrew Yang and uh, UBI in particular? I love Andrew Yang. I think it's absolutely correct and kind of obvious that uh, the future of uh, healthy democratic society has got to have a UBI in it. I think the future of work has got to aspire not to 40-hour-a-week jobs that everybody engages in from the age of 21 until 65. Um, but the idea of work we should be aspiring to is meaningful, valuable work. And it might not mean, it might, might, might not be possible that you do that for 40 hours a week. And that should be okay. Like you should be able, we should be able to live in a society that supports us to live and then be able to do the things that meaning something to you. And that might be running a podcast. It might be, you know, being a coffee barista. The point is not the substance. The point is it is meaningful to you. There's a great book. Um, and I'm embarrassed as an author that I'm now blanking on the author um, because he's really uh, – uh, so I'm now bullshitting until I can get you the Bullshit Jobs um, book. Um, but this is uh, – the book is uh, called Bullshit Jobs, and it is by um, – um, 
David Graeber, really fantastic sociologist. Um, so what Graeber does in this book is he creates this category bullshit jobs, which is a job which the person who has the job thinks does no good for society or for anybody at all. So it's not an, it's not an external ju judgment, it's an internal judgment. And then he surveys people and he finds, you know, anywhere between 20 and 40% of Americans or people uh, in the context of the surveys believe they have bullshit jobs. And when I read this, I, I felt a deep sense of guilt because, you know, I go to work every day and I love my work. Like I wake up to be able to work. I mean, I love what I can do, like teaching and writing and thinking, this is what I want to be doing. And yet I walk down the hall and I look into an office where there's an assistant behind a computer and I think, oh my God, that poor person, you know, he probably has a graduate degree in, you know, fine arts from some, you know, Swarthmore or something like that. I can't get that at Swarthmore. But the point is a great degree from a great university, but he couldn't get a job doing anything other than like being an assistant, like, you know, getting reservations and stuff like that. And so every day he wakes up thinking, oh shit, how do I get through these next nine hours of my life? so that I can do what I want to do. And that's a great injustice. Like the society should not have to have that. Like, and so when machines come along and take that work away from us, we should celebrate it. That's liberation. That's liberating humans from the, from the drudgery of stupid work. And we should enable society to permit that and then allow and encourage people to take up work that is meaningful to them, whether that's poetry or, or being a waiter or whatever. Um, and so I think that Andrew Yang, like like uh, like um, Bernie Sanders in eight, 19, uh, 2016, introduced this idea to the debate the way Bernie Sanders introduced the idea of single payer health care into the debate in 2016. And it will fester and it will grow. And obviously the COVID crisis has kind of made it obvious, like nobody can understand why they hadn't thought about it before. Um uh, and so I think he's done an enormous service to, uh, you know, progress and to understanding how things are going to grow. Now, it's striking, though, you know, Bernie, um, when he was asked about Andrew's ideas, he said he was against them. He didn't like the idea of like the UBI. He, what he wanted was like meaningful jobs that people could have, 40-hour-a-week jobs. So his vision was the vision of 1950s America. Like, that's what we want. We want to stable workforce where people are going to know they're going to have a job at the, at the steel mills for their whole life. And that's the stability he wants. I'm with Andrew and thinking that's not the future. That's not the way the world's going to be. And instead we have to build a system of work, liberated and meaningful work in the context of the way the world's going to become. And, and that means UBI is a central part of that. Yeah. I'll tell you a story about my experience with that. Um, I did went to public school for my whole uh, elementary, junior high, and high school life until I was um, a junior in high school. Um, and before that, I did not get great grades. I had a really hard time sitting still. If I had different parents, they probably would have put me on Ritalin. Um, I would always do very well on in, in the field projects as well as um, class presentations. But other than that, I was not a great student. And then when I was a junior in high school, um, I started doing independent studies. And it was right around that time that I learned about um, the banking system and more specifically the impact that citizens can have locally by putting their money into local banks and credit unions. And that by putting our money into 
multinational banks um, that were funding environmental destruction, we were inadvertently uh, funding that um, with uh, with um, fractional reserve lending as well. If you put a dollar into the bank, that bank can lend out many times more than that. So I was never really interested in banking particularly, but I was interested um, in that system of leveraged impact the same way that I'm interested in campaign finance reform. And because I had the freedom with homeschool to really follow that project rather than do six periods a week, six periods a day, uh, 45 minute classes, I really delved deeply into that learning process. And then when I was uh, a senior in high school, I was 18. um, I also really wanted to become a professional surfer. Uh, And I figured out a way to combine the project of banking and surfing. I found out about a proposed coal-fired power plant down in uh, Chile on this really great beach um, in a place called Constitucion. All the locals were against this, this coal plant. And uh, it was being underwritten by Bank of America. So I, at 18 years old, um, approached Patagonia, um, which is a surf climbing outdoor company um, and is arguably the, the best company out there when it, when it comes to sustainability. And uh, I, I asked them, I was like, all right, I want you to give me $10,000 and I'm going to go down and I'm going to make this movie on the banking system and, and uh, surfing. And they were like, well, uh, here's a t-shirt kid. <laughs> Come back to us in a year. But I was able to, to write a grant and raise a couple thousand dollars to make my way down there and tell this story of this proposed coal power plant on the beach. Um, and I released the video in 2008, right along the, the time of um, the banking collapse. So people for the first time in a very long time had their eye on where their money was. And um, the video got seen by a bunch of people. Um, I was able to give a TEDx talk about it. And it kind of launched me into um, this life of being able to make short films about issues that I cared about. And then Patagonia started supporting me and giving me a small salary to go out and, and make these movies. And I was never really making much money at it, but it allowed me this time in my 20s where I could learn about a lot of different subjects and and learn really deeply about them and start this podcast. And I'm 30 now, and I'm I'm just now starting to make a better living doing all of this. And I think about my... The reason I tell you that story is because I think that I'm a prime example of a UBI-like person. Like I had this leg up when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, that allowed me to pursue this work that I really love. And now at 30, be in a position where I'm talking to Lawrence Lessig. Um, And I don't think that I could have done that if I was forced to work at a coffee shop or some bullshit job through my 20s. Yeah, I think it's a great example. And I think it should inspire people about, and it should even inspire like older people like me. Because like, you know, I have three kids. My oldest is 16. My youngest is 10. And when I think of like what I want for them, the last thing in the world I want for them is a stable job that they're going to work at for 40 years of their life. Like what could be more mind numbingly terrible than that? Um, what I want is for them to have the freedom to find what's, what drives their passion and have the 
capacity to pursue that. Now, if I were a billionaire, I could give it to them, but I'm not a billionaire. Um, <clears throat> unless everybody buys my book, then maybe I would be. But um, but without that, you know, magical uh, thinking occurring, um, what we need is a society that enables anybody, whether billionaire, whether their parents are billionaires or not, to have this freedom, freedom of meaningful work, as I think a fundamental idea that we've got to rediscover, and which was incredibly important, important moments in our history. You know, um, Lincoln was a big believer in what he called free labor, which obviously is not laboring for free. It's not slavery. But it's the idea that you can work your way up. It's the right to rise, that you were never bound by your status or your parents' status. It's just a a free, um, you know, idea of like capacity and development um, that depended on you know, people having independence that you couldn't you couldn't be a free laborer inside of a factory. That was bullshit. You had to have your own tools. It's like the petty bourgeois idea of like small shops and like the independence that that gave you. But this whole idea of labor being deeply meaningful to humans was an incredibly important part of what he cared about, which is why Marx even wrote him. Right. I mean, these incredible connections in our history uh, between these traditions. But at moments, we've realized why building the capacity for humans to be the best they can as humans has been the chart is, is our objective, should be our objective. Making a world that allows us to be the best possible humans we can should be our objective, as opposed to a world that makes it so the machines or the corporations are the most profitable they can be. Mm. Is, would you say that writing is the most satisfying aspect of your work? Well, writing is for me because it's the way I get into the zone. It's when I can flow. I flow when I write. Um, And it takes a lot to kind of get me there. I have devices like there's a great program called Freedom that turns off the Internet. I love Freedom. (laughs) Um, But once I'm in, you know, once I get going on a book, I I don't need the I don't need the, the prosthetics. I can just turn it on and start writing. And so when I get up and I get coffee and I can work for four hours and write for four hours. That is the best time in the world for me. Now, you know, for other people, it's, you know, being a carpenter or, you know, going out and um, uh, doing work on, you know, in a forest. It's, it's not the point of the particular thing. It's just the thing that you do that makes you feel free. And when you feel like you're being the best that you can be. Um, and that's, that's writing for me. Do you write on a computer initially, or do you have a written journal that you will um, write first drafts on? How do you actually spur that engine to, uh, as as the author of the art, of the War of Art says, um, allow the muse to arrive? Yeah, I can't. So I physically can't write. I have to type. Um, so I'm always typing, but I'm not somebody who writes a final draft. Um, so there's very different modes of writing. One is like the initial carving, um, which is really hard. It takes a lot to be able to get the first thoughts down. But then the editing of that initial carving is, I find much easier because it's not as hard. You're not thinking in a deep way. You're thinking in a, in a more um, um, shallow or, uh, you know, aesthetic way. Like what's the best way to put it, not what's the it that you're trying to put. And, and so that means I go through many drafts and, um, and one part of the process is really, really hard and the other is really, really fun. Yeah. Who have been the most influential writers in your life? Um, 
I mean, you know, it depends what part of my life. Like, so I was obsessed with Wittgenstein when I studied philosophy. Um, uh, when I was a young libertarian, I was obsessed with Hayek. I read everything I could get that Hayek ever wrote. Um, um, before that, it was Ayn Rand, right? So that, but then I grew up. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, in in the law, I mean, people like Bruce Ackerman's work is incredibly inspiring to me. But you know, people like I don't know if you've read this book by Jeffrey West, um, who's a th theoretical physicist, but the book is called Scale. Um, you know, it's probably one of the five most important books I've ever read. Uh, like, totally changes the way you view everything and the in the universe um, and really is aspirational to think about everything in the universe. But, um, you know, I think that part of what one should seek is a life that has many dimensions and many sources of meaning. And so that, you know, that's, that's the diversity of what I read. Um, so I wouldn't think of any as standing above the others. Hmm. I just got one more question for you and we can go. Um, there's a quote by Arthur Miller, which is an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. And I think that we're seeing this more and more, uh, you know, the Catholic church, political systems. Um, I was wondering what this quote makes you think of. Um, and I guess more specifically, the question is um, you're arguing for the Supreme Court, you know, you were, you were just there last week. Um, do you think that the Supreme Court, that, uh, that when we are appointing these officials for a lifetime, is this the most um, effective way to create a progressive society? Yeah, no. I mean, I think liberals have made a terrible mistake over the past 50 years in believing that we get progress through five justices on the Supreme Court. It's a terrible, terrible mistake. I mean, we only get progress by convincing a majority of Americans to vote for progress. That, that's what progress is. Um, and so obsessing about getting the court to announce all these principles rather than getting ordinary people to affirm those principles is a completely terrible strategic mistake that we made and, and shouldn't have made. Um, but, you know, I do think that we're at this incredibly hopeful moment because uh, this crisis has just thrown into relief how embarrassing the institutions of our political and economic system are. Um, you know, the idea that months into the crisis, we still can't get face masks. <laughs> we still don't have tests. Um, there's still not toilet paper. I mean, you know, I think we all had this illusion about the American economy, like working efficiently when we were living off of our Amazon Prime deliveries, 24 hours, you can get anything into your house. And then, you know, the smallest thing happens and all of a sudden we can't get toilet paper. Um, and, and to see at the same time this growing inequality, like, you know, the wealth that Jeff Bezos has 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 earned just in the middle of this crisis, I think is making many people realize that something, something fundamental has to change. The thing that I worry about, though, 
is that we're not going to find a way to connect about this issue. Because the reality is many of us, and I'm in this class, have experienced this shutdown as kind of blissful, kind of great. You know, I mean, I get paid the same amount of money I would be paid without the shutdown. I, I think I'm working more. I think I'm getting more done. I'm spending more time with my family. Like we're cooking together. We play games together. It's it's kind of been fun. You know, it's kind of been good. Um, and and people in my position, you know, go to Twitter, they go to Reddit, and they see all these idiot protesters out there, like, you know, my body, my life, and, you know, resisting. And our immediate reaction is to think of these as stupid people. But I think what we should be recognizing is, most of these are people who are not experiencing the shutdown as a, as a point of joy. They, they, they don't have a job. They, they can't pay their rent. Um, they can't uh, homeschool their kids. Um, you know, they're suffering. They're suffering because of um, this crisis and because the politicians not stepped up to help them first. And the reality of their suffering is that they don't hold the government responsible for that. They hold themselves in some sense responsible. And so they say, I want to go back to work. And, and you say, well, you could get sick. And they're like, okay, but it's better to eat than it is. It's better to eat and risk getting sick than it is to starve and, and not get sick. Um, and, I, and so I think that the problem we have, we in the comfortable place have is not practicing the empathy to understand just how horrible it is on the other side and to build understanding with them so that we can get a common reaction to this catastrophe that makes it possible that we do something good with it. I don't see, I don't think we're anywhere close to that now, and I don't see the people who are pushing it in a way that could get us there. Lawrence Lessig, thank you so much for your time. I said it before, but you've been a really big influence in my life, and uh, your work has made it all the way into the year, ears of a California surfer. So who would have thunk? Great. Thank you. That's our show. If you enjoyed that episode and you want to hear more like it, check out episode number 139 with Rolling Stone journalist Matt Taibbi or episode number 219 with criminal justice attorney Jody Armour. I'm going to play you out with a song called Way Down Low by Light the Band. If you are a musician and you want your music played at the end of this show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. I will be tripping around Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana this summer, sleeping out of my Subaru. Uh, we just named her. Her name is Jody Forrester, and I will be camping and fishing and podcasting and writing all summer long. So if you're in Montana, Wyoming, or Colorado, give me a shout, info at kyle.surf. And don't forget, we now have the box of goodies up and running. This month, June, it is David Sedaris's book, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, as well as some potent CBD tincture from Santa Cruz Medicinals. You can click the link below or head over to my website, kyle.surf, to get any of that good stuff. Hope you're all doing well. Get out in the water, whatever body of water you are closest to lake, stream, river, ocean, or bathtub. I promise it will make your day better. See you soon.